in our walk with the Lord, and then to multiply uh, those that are able to be disciple makers. And I've had a lot of fun thinking through each person that has been a part of one of those videos that our creative team has interviewed, and then uh, to be able to present them to our church family. If I could interview every single person that's a member of our church, I would certainly do it. But one of the reasons that I love Emmy's story is because now she finds herself as one of our uh, missional community group leaders. Uh, she leads the group that meets in our home uh, with Connor, and, um, and she also is uh, the deaconess of our Connections ministry. But she didn't come into the Oaks uh, with a, a desire for, I want to lead this team or I want to lead this group, uh, but just saying, Lord, wherever you will put me is where I want to be. And so uh, I love that heart of service that is reflected not only in Emmy, but in so many people in our church. And so um, I want to encourage you, uh, where you see an opportunity, take it. Where you see a need, seek to meet it. Where you recognize something that might be overlooked by someone else. Could it be that God has given you a specific sensitivity to that need because he has gifted you with the ability to meet it? And so step in there as we continue to see God bring more people to the Oaks Church as we continue to see more opportunities arise to serve and to serve in leadership. And I'm so grateful for you and uh, just the heart of our church to serve one another in that way. Now, today is a fun Sunday because we actually come to the close of Romans 16. We are finishing the book of Romans after walking through the book of Romans for the, the fall semester of the past three years. Uh, so if you have your copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and find Romans chapter 16. Now, as you turn there, uh, I wanted to also give an update in regards to the Roots Initiative. Uh, as many of you know, we had Commitment Sunday on the 5th. Our goal for the Roots Initiative was uh, a, a primary goal of each person taking a step to grow deeper gospel roots. And we had nearly 200 people participate in saying, I am going to take a next step in some way. For many, it was uh, church membership. For some, it was baptism. For others, it was, you know, I want to figure out my relationship with the Lord. Other people said, I want to join a missional community group. Uh, I want to figure out where I can serve or lead. Uh, so it was so encouraging to read how many of you were saying, I believe that this is the next step that the Holy Spirit is leading me to take. But there was also a component, a secondary goal, that we would raise $100,000 to $150,000 so that we could complete the renovations of the Oaks Church building to be able to move into that building, hopefully within the next couple of months. And so our church gave sacrificially, you gave generously uh, to be a part of what God is doing in and through our church in this city and around the world. And the, the total commitments that were given as of this morning was $123,756.41. Can we celebrate God's faithfulness? Um, we... We had the goal of raising at least 100,000, and they thought, well, you know, what if we just say 100 to 150,000, and then to see uh, that we exceeded the first goal, getting so close to the second, and still so much time uh, in the year. We're, our, our building team is so excited about uh, the steps that we can take, knowing that the Lord has provided through your sacrificial generosity uh, to be able to complete what is needed to move into this building and to officially give the Oaks Church uh, a permanent home to do ministry out of to the city that God has placed us in. Now, with that being said, hopefully you have found Romans chapter 16. As I reflected on coming to the end of our journey in the book of Romans, I just began to flip through the pages and think about kind of these snapshots of where the Lord has taken us as a church through this book. I mean, think about like whenever we first began Romans chapter one, it was our second Sunday meeting in this room as a church, about 175 of us at the time meeting right here. And we got to, to talk about the seriousness of sin and the faithfulness of God. And then I think about some of the other snapshots, faith modeled through Abraham that provides a righteousness that can only come through Christ. The passage that Hunter read as our call to worship that now we have been justified through Christ. We have peace with God. Think about Romans 8. How, how we all needed Romans 8. And it was as if we climbed to the top of this mountain and had this panoramic view of the faithfulness of God, the mercy of God, 
the love of God that is so vast that no matter what trial we endure, we could never be separated from it. The sovereignty of God over salvation. The practical application of how to live these truths out in our daily lives as individuals in chapter 12, as a community, the end of 12 through 15. And now we come to 16, and I, I wonder if, if you were to just go home and flip through your, your notebook where you have sermon notes, if you were to think about the, the shared album, if you will, the metaphor, the, the conversations that you've had in your missional community group where somebody said something, and you're like, you know, I've never thought about that in that way. And you were nudged just a little bit closer to the Lord, where you, where you thought about a truth a little bit deeper, where you lingered on it a little bit longer than you ever had before. As you consider us closing this journey, where, where the Lord takes us next into the book of Luke will be a lot of fun, but, but whenever you reflect on the book of Romans, what snapshots have you taken along the way? What is a part of that shared album that we would look back at as a church family? As I was looking back at my sermon in Romans chapter 1, I was reminded of this quote by John Calvin. He, he speaks of the book of Romans and he says, if we have gained an understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. The door is open to the most profound treasures of Scripture. And how many weeks have we come into this room and walked through that door again and again and turned over the treasure that only God has to offer through the gospel together? Martin Luther says, Romans is this true masterpiece of the New Testament, the very purest gospel. A Christian should not only learn it by heart, word for word, but also that he should daily deal with it. It as the daily bread of men's souls for it can never be too much or too well read or studied. So while we might be done with the series of the book of Romans, I, I pray that this has only kind of whet your appetite for the truth that is in Romans, that maybe you're a, a little better informed, have a little bit more experience to now be able to lead a Bible study through Romans with friends at work or a fellow group of believers, that uh, maybe we scratched the surface of a lifelong study in this book, that you would enter through the door of Romans and be reminded of God's faithfulness anew for years to come. Now, with that being said, we're going to look at Romans 16. And the theme of Romans 16 is we see a series of names and a doxology that will close out this wonderful letter is that the gospel creates a community of people that live by faith and for God's glory. The gospel creates a community of people that live by faith and for God's glory. God saves a person at a time, but God creates for himself a people called the church, a community of people called out and called to himself. And these people are uniquely distinguished in this way, that they live by faith. That's a theme that we find from Romans 1, isn't it? That we are saved by the gospel, but, but our life is lived from faith, by faith, for faith. All trusting God. The aim, the purpose of our lives is that we would bring the Lord glory. With that being said, we're going to look at three conclusions from the conclusion of the book of Romans. So let's look at Romans 16. I wanna read verses one through 17 with you. We'll see how well I handle these Greek and Hebrew names. Paul says, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Century, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca, Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who worked, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord, 
Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patras, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, and Nereus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and uh, assume that you've probably never dug super deep into this final greeting of Paul's letters. Uh, of the letter of Romans. I know know that I hadn't at length in a way that I did this week to prepare for the sermon. And so uh, what might appear like a list of names to us will will bring us to a a very profound conclusion as we consider the role and the calling that God has given each of us in the church. We would conclude that we each have different roles, but the same goal. As we reflect on verses 1 through 17, we would conclude that we each have different roles, but we have the same goal. The mission of God is a group project. I mean, we look at the apostle Paul, and we see that he has this dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. He has this call as a a Jew, a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's called to the Gentile. He's masterful in his ability to argue Greek rhetoric, but also with his knowledge and understanding of the Hebrew scriptures to be able to preach about Christ. And yet what we will see is that Paul did not operate alone, that even though Paul was uniquely gifted, there was nothing about Paul's ministry that took place in isolation. What we find here is a call to rely on one another, to depend upon one another whenever it comes to ministry and the Christian life. We see that modeled here in the life of Paul, one of the most gifted apostles relying on others. And our reflection from this is that God has not created us as Christians to be independent, but he has created us as the church to be interdependent. We have often said at the Oaks that God has designed us to be better together. And we see that modeled here through the life of Paul in the final chapter of the book of Romans because of the way that he names other people that God has uniquely used in his ministry. He's addressing Christians that were in the church of Rome. He's sending greetings to them, many that he knew personally or knew through some sort of ministry connection. And what you will find as we read through these names is that this is a very diverse family of people. Among this group of people, you will find both Jew and Gentile. There is ethnic diversity here. There is a difference in uh, religious upbringing, upbringing and cultural background here. You'll also find that there are male and female mentioned, that God has designed the church uh, with two genders, male and female, equal before God, integral to ministry to complement one another. You will find that there is slave and free, that there is rich and poor. There are people from different statuses in society, different social classes, different socioeconomic levels, all together to be a part of God's mission to the world, to bring Him glory. So that being said, I just kind of want to look at each one of these names and give you some of the background behind them. I think you will find it fruitful and encouraging as I have this week. In verse 1, Paul says, I commend you to, to you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Century. Now, we discover two things about Phoebe here. Uh, one, that she's a sister. She's a fellow Christian. And he says, I, I commend her to you. Now, we know that she is the one that is carrying the letter to the Romans. So Paul was most likely writing this letter from Corinth, and she is the one that is tasked with the mission of taking this letter and giving it to the church in Rome, and then it would be spread around through the house churches there. So Paul says, welcome her whenever she comes to you. Be hospitable. She's a patron to my ministry. She has financially supported my ministry. She is an integral part of what God has been doing here in Corinth and throughout the world. So greet her. 
we find that she's not only a sister, but sh that she is a servant. She's a servant specifically of the church at Century. This is a, a smaller city that was not far from Corinth, once again, uh, helping us to understand that Paul would have been writing this letter from the city of Corinth. Now, the interesting thing here is that the word servant is uh, diakonos, the same word that we get our word deacon from. And so scholars have debated, whenever we read this, is this an, an office that Phoebe holds in the church? Is she the, one of the deacons of the church in century, or is she uh, simply someone who serves at the church in century? Now, uh, this is one of the passages that our elders reflected on whenever it came to our understanding of believing that the role of deacon in the church can be held by both male and female. So we would say, yes, the office of elder or pastor is an office that is reserved for male. We see that in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Uh, but at the same time, we believe that this was an actual office that Phoebe held in the church at Century. Now, there's a couple of reasons we believe that. Uh, first, because 1 Timothy 3, 11, uh, some interpret that to be a reference to the wives of deacons, um, but the Greek could also be translated female deacons, which is a very common translation that we reached the conclusion in as we thought about that. That's also informed by passages like this, because what you will find is that this is the only reference in the New Testament where it's not simply um, a servant uh, of Christ, but where she has been given this formal link with a specific local body. So it seems that because it says the servant of the church in century, that this is a formal position that Phoebe held in this church body. Uh, not only that, the interesting thing is the word diakonos, when it's used here, is given the masculine noun ending, but Phoebe is a female. So you would think if it's simply describing someone who was a servant in the church or was someone who served at the church, that as a way to modify that person, it would use the feminine noun, but it uses masculine noun here, thus denoting that this was an actual office, a leadership position, and not simply a descriptor of someone that serves. Now, I know that that's kind of a lot, but it matters, um, especially in a time where we could be like, you know, wait, why, why are there these roles that can be held by this gender? Why, why is this happening? Regardless of the way that this shapes your view of church government, I want you to see that both men and women are integral to the mission of God. Uh, she supported Paul's ministry. And so he says, welcome her as you have welcomed me. Welcome her as she has served many. You now serve her. In verse 3, Paul mentions Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Now, the next two people that are mentioned here, Prisca and Aquila, are most likely Priscilla and Aquila uh, that we meet in the book of Acts. Now, you might know Priscilla and Aquila's story because they were people that were actually from Rome. So it's interesting that now we find them back in Rome. Uh, but as we have explained kind of the history of what took place, Claudius, who was the emperor um, in, in Rome for a long period of time, in 49 AD, he had all of the Jewish Christians, or all of the Jews, expelled from Rome. And so then they found themselves in Ephesus serving alongside Paul. Because what took place whenever Paul was in Ephesus? Well, we know that he sold tents, that he worked alongside fellow tent makers, Priscilla and Aquila, and that uh, one day there was this uproar in the marketplace, in the Agora, where Demetrius, a silversmith, said, this guy Paul, uh, with his friends, keeps telling people that Artemis is not a real god. And so the silversmiths are having a really hard time selling all of our idols of Artemis because now all these people are trying to worship this god that Paul is talking about. So they, they drag Paul into this arena where 25,000 people in the amphitheater for two hours screamed, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. And we know that at some point, there was an intervention in which Paul was rescued. He was able to leave there, and then he, he eventually leaves the city. So whenever Paul says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers, my, my kinsmen in the faith, who risked their necks for me, we see that uh, these were people that were a big part of Paul's ministry. We see in verse 5 that they actually had a church meeting in their home in Rome. Uh, we also know that that was something that they did in Ephesus as well. 
Now, here's my reflection as I looked at the life of Priscilla and Aquila. We see that there are, there are people who supported Paul's ministry. They were hospitable. They held a church in their home in multiple locations throughout the, the New Testament. That they were people who at one point, there was this young preacher who was really gifted. He, he's very great at preaching, but, but needed some help with his doctrine named Apollos. And they took him in and they, they helped him understand the scriptures a little bit more. They went out to preach. We see him mentioned in 1 Corinthians is this great guy. And I thought, I want my marriage to have an impact on other people like the marriage of Priscilla and Aquila. Hey, think about that. They, they didn't write a, a letter that we find in the New Testament. They, they don't have this really prominent role, but they're mentioned several times. And you know why they're mentioned? Because they made it their aim to minister to others. And I thought, what if, what if each married couple had that same kind of conviction? Lord, use our home to pour into others. You know, this, the, this young person that feels called to ministry, why don't, we, why don't we kind of take them along? Why don't we start mentoring them? You know, we see missionaries in different places. Why don't we give financially to what they're doing? Why don't we write notes of encouragement to, the, to them as they are serving on the field? And just see what God would do with it. If you're, if you're single here and you're seeking marriage, if, if you desire marriage, think, who would be my Priscilla? Who would be my Aquila? Who is the type of person that would not only be a good fit, someone that, that I find interesting or attractive, but who would I want to do ministry alongside for the rest of my life? If you're married, what does it look like for you to say, let's, let's use our marriage intentionally for the glory of God? We continue in verse 5, and Paul says, Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Now, he's most likely referring to Ephesus whenever he talks about this, because Priscilla and Aquila would have known this guy as well. And it seems like he would have made his way from Ephesus to now Rome. Maybe he went with them. Uh, maybe he was another one of those guys that they were kind of bringing alongside themselves as they grow and pour into others. It's interesting that we read that he was the first convert uh, because there's actually a metaphorical word here that is used in the Greek. We read first convert in the English, but the word is actually first fruits. Now, this was, uh, you know, a part of Hebrew culture, it was a, a part of the command of the Old Testament that whenever your crop began to grow, whenever, you know, the, the fruit first formed on the vine, that you would take the first of that fruit and that you would give it to the Lord, that you would give it as a sacrifice to the Lord. And by doing that, you're saying the Lord has provided what we need. Once again, my, my crops have begun to grow. And because I trust that the Lord will bring about the rest, I'm able to give him my first and my best. Well, well here Paul is saying Eponidas is the first fruits of what God was doing in Ephesus, the first person that, that we were able to lead to the Lord whenever God took us to Ephesus. And God kept his promise to continue to grow that church. The fields were white for harvest and many more came to faith in Christ. How do we know that? Because later Paul would write a letter to the church in Ephesus and that it would be scattered to many churches around that region. That Ephesus then goes on according to Revelation chapters one through three, and plants six additional churches in that region. Smyrna, Sardis, these, these other churches, Thyatira. And so here we see that Eponidas was the first fruit of what God would do and many more would come. It makes me think about our own lives. What does it look like for you to be the first fruit in the sphere that God has placed you in? In your workplace, among your family, many of you are generation, first generation Christians. What does it look like to have an intentional conversation when you go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas? What does it look like to ask questions that dig a little bit deeper? What does it look like to say, God, I'm trusting that if you have saved me, you will save others. May it be that the Lord would send you out so you, that you could be the person that says, this guy, this young lady was the first fruit the first convert in this place. And yet as I survey God's faithfulness through decades and through generations, there were many more to come. 
Let's continue. I promise I'll speed it up because I don't know anything about Mary in verse 6. So, uh, <laughs> greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Mary was a hard worker in Rome. Uh, <laughs> that's all we got. Um, now, Mary was a very popular Hebrew name, but there's no reason here to think that this is one of the other Marys that we hear about in Scripture. Um, verse 7, Andronicus and Junia, uh, these were most likely uh, another married couple. They're referred to as Paul's kinsmen, which means that they were from a Jewish background. We find out that they were actually in Christ before Paul, so they were converted before Paul was, and that they were well, well known among the apostles. Uh, now, apostles here, the word uh, apostolos can also mean like missionaries or sent out ones. Um, so this could be interpreted that they were really well known for the way that they were missionaries to other people. Or Paul could be saying that they were really well known among all of the apostles for the work that they did. Um, either way, we see that they played a significant role in the ministry of Paul. Verse 8, uh, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus. In verse 9, our fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. And greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Uh, so the, the first um, four guys that are named there, we really don't know a lot about, but just that they were uh, a big part of Paul's ministry. Whenever you read uh, the family of Aristobulus in verse 10, that um, could be referring to one of Herod the Great's grandsons, but we don't know that for sure. And uh, anytime you read that, you know, the, the people in their house, it could be referring uh, to either slaves or servants that are a part of that house, or it could be referring to uh, people that were a member of that family. And so um, what, what we'll actually find here toward the end of uh, this greeting is that whenever Paul is speaking of a household, he's speaking of the local church that gathers in that place. And so uh, there's, a, there's already a network of churches in Rome that has begun to form through Christianity and through the gospel going forward there. Uh, whenever we read in verses 11 and 12 uh, to greet Herodian and uh, the family of Narcissus. There's a lot of speculation about who these people are. It's interesting, but there's not enough evidence for it to be sermon-worthy. Uh, so we're just not going not gonna to delve into that too deep. Um, verse 12, there are three women that are greeted, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis, hard workers in the Lord. Verse 13, now this one's interesting because Paul says, greet Rufus, who is chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Now, Paul mentions Rufus, and he, he describes him as one that is chosen in the Lord. Uh, now, here's some background. There is actually um, someone named Rufus that is mentioned at the end of Mark's gospel. Some of you might be familiar with this. Uh, now, why is that significant? Well, we know that Mark was kind of the amanuensis. He was the intern of Peter, the apostle. And so whenever we read the gospel of Mark, we just went through that as a church. Uh, Mark is writing from the perspective of Peter as Peter is dictating uh, the, the gospel of Mark. And so um, Mark is in Rome. Peter was in Rome. So the audience that Mark is writing to would have been familiar with Christians that are in the Church of Rome. Church still fairly small at that time. So if you were in Rome, you would have probably at least known by name all of the other Christians that were there. And so here, as Paul is writing to the church in Rome, he says, oh yeah, also greet Rufus, who's chosen in the Lord, who is among you. Now, if you've read the Gospels, you know that three of four of the Gospels mention that as Jesus was carrying his cross, he collapsed. And there was this guy named Simon of Cyrene that the soldiers say, hey, you know what? You carry the cross of Jesus and you take that cross uh, to the place that this man is going to be crucified. Now, Mark alone in Mark 15, 21 mentions a detail that none of the other Gospel writers mention. He says... Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexandria and Rufus, of Alexander and Rufus. And so here we can assume that whenever Paul says that he is chosen in the Lord, that perhaps he is referencing that moment 
in which Rufus, as a young child, had this personal encounter with the beaten Jesus on his road to crucifixion because it was his father who helped carry the cross of Jesus to the place of his crucifixion. And so what kind of impact did that have on him of having that personal encounter with Christ as just a young boy and seeing his own father carry the cross of Christ? That he as one chosen in the Lord would be a part of the work that God was doing in and throughout the church of Rome. That's why it's so exciting to dig into stuff like this. And you're like, that's just a bunch of names. No, God is, it's, it's amazing how the inspired scripture, God breathed, speaks through these pages. Uh, verse 14 and 15, we see a list of names. But what I want you to notice at the end of 14, it says, and the brothers who are with them. Uh, 15, you have a list of names, and it says, and all the saints who are with them. Uh, this is Paul greeting two house churches. So he names some of the leaders, and he says, and also greet the brothers and sisters that are with them. Greet all of the saints that are with them. What we find here is uh, that there are five local churches named from the one at Priscilla and Aquila's house, the one at uh, Aristobulus's house, at Narcissus's house, and then these two mentioned here. Uh, so every home kind of had this courtyard where you could have a small gathering, and that's what was taking place here in this letter. Now, I, I say all this so that you can see throughout the pages of Scripture that God has designed us to be better together that it is, it is sinful to isolate yourself and to think that you are independent and self-sufficient. That one of the ways that we see the sufficiency of Christ and the way that he cares for us and strengthens us is in the church body that he provides. And so as we look at this passage, we're reminded of the opening pages of scripture. What do we see in, in Genesis 1? That God creates, he creates the sun and the stars and says, it is good that he creates the birds of the air, the animals of the ground, and the fish of the sea and declares it is good. He says it again and again until at one moment in Genesis 2.18, he says something was not good. And what was that? That God created Adam and there was, there was no one fit for him. That there, there was no relationship for him. And so God created Eve. Now, while this, this is a great reference to uh, describe the, the gift of marriage, I, I think we can go a step further and just admit that this points to the fact that we are created in the image of a relational God, and because of that, we are relational beings. So yes, the expression for some people is the gift of marriage, but the expression of this gift for everyone is just the relationships that we have with one another, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is not good for us to be alone. And so we must be in relationship with one another. We are created in the image of God, and we know that God in all eternity has existed in community. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the perfect Trinity existing in relationship with one another from eternity past and through eternity future. And because of that, we are created with an internal need for relationships with one another. Well, we find that here displayed, modeled through the life of Paul. And I want to encourage you. What does it look like for you to be in meaningful relationship with one another? Do you have a, a church family? Maybe you've been visiting uh, for, for a few weeks. What does it look like for you to commit here and to have pastors and church members that know you and care for you? What does it look like to be a part of a missional community group where you can share what's going on in your heart, what's difficult, and what you're celebrating? As you think through the, if, if you were to pen a letter of this, like this, on your own, who would, who would you celebrate? Who would you say, you know what, this person has been a, a fellow worker. This person has been beloved to me. This person has been a great encouragement in my faith. Who would make your greetings section at the Oaks Church or throughout your life? Whose who's greeting section, if you will, would you be a part of? If someone else was asked, who's been encouraging to you? Who's, who's walked alongside you in the faith? Who's, whose shoulder have you been able to rest your head on in some of the most difficult days of your life? May we be named among that number because we wanted to serve others as Christ has served us, recognizing that we all have different roles, but that we have one goal, the glory of God and his mission throughout the world. Now, we, we find that Paul is greeting people. I, I also, um, and you know, 
similar to what Hunter addressed last week, uh, Paul has a desire to go to Spain. And so he is mentioning all of these brothers and sisters to show the credibility of his message and his ministry as he's looking to make Rome a home base as he seeks to go on mission to Spain. With that being said, in verses 17 through 23, we will reach the second conclusion from the conclusion of Romans, that we hold fast to the truth and look forward to the day that Christ's triumph is fully realized. We hold fast to the truth and we look forward to the, to the day that Christ's triumph over sin, Satan, and death is fully realized. Verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught and avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. Now, Paul here is warning the church in Rome to watch out for those who would try to deceive them with smooth talk and flattery. Here he wants them to understand that just because they know the gospel well, they're not immune to deception and false teachers that would come and try to lead them astray. In Romans 15, 15, Paul says, um, I'm not writing this stuff to you because it's the first time you've ever heard it. I'm writing these things to you by way of reminder, okay? So this was a church that had solid doctrine. They were gifted. They had people that could instruct other people. And yet Paul is saying, watch out for those who would come in, uh, that with their smooth talk and flattery, that they would try to steer people in the wrong direction. He says um, that, that they don't seek to serve the Lord, they seek to serve their own appetites. Uh, the, the literal phrase there is they worship their bellies. Um, so they have this craving for uh, self, like, like propping up themselves and uh, making much of themselves, inflating their importance and leading people away from worshiping the Lord. And so Paul says here, be very careful. Uh, the end of verse 17, he says that they create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. So avoid them. Hold fast to right doctrine and avoid wrong doctrine. As I said earlier, uh, we just got back from our trip and we spent roughly 30 hours on, on a plane. Um, you know, it was, it was a lot of travel. And if you were to say, hey, I'm going on an international flight, what is like, you know, the top five essentials that I should bring with me? Uh, number one on my list would be noise-canceling headphones. Um, because like the dull roar of a plane engine over nine hours can just drive you nuts. Jake knows, he's giving me the nod. Um, and so, but here's the cool thing. You turn on the noise canceling button on the headphones and then it's just like, you can't hear anything at all. And I thought this was so fascinating that I did some research on how this actually worked. And my assumption would be that noise canceling headphones are just um, like have a ton of padding to just muffle all of the outside noise but it's actually a lot more sophisticated than that. So noise-canceling headphones, and some of you probably already know this, so this isn't news to you, but I just found this was really interesting. So what noise-canceling headphones do is they have microphones on the outside that pick up the signal and the frequency of whatever the wavelength is that is being produced around you by like the ambient noise. And then there are speakers inside the headphones and they transmit a frequency, they begin to play a wavelength that is the exact opposite of whatever the wavelength is of the ambient noise around you. And so whenever those two frequencies hit your eardrum, they collide and just completely cancel out. So it's like if this wave is like up here, then there's this frequency that then your headphones play that's just down here. And then whenever they hit in your ears, it's just like you don't hear anything at all. So in order to drown out the loud noise that you can't stand, there's actually more noise being played so that your ears just are unaffected by the noise around you. And I thought of that whenever Paul says, hey, there's gonna be a lot of noise 
around you by, by false teachers. Um, he's going to say that your faith is known to all. In, in verse 19, your obedience is known to all. There, because of the way that the church in Rome is growing and succeeding, because of its health, there's going to be a lot of people that want to come in and, and take you the wrong direction. But the antidote to that is, is not just trying to cancel, it's not just trying to, to tune out all of the noise and to pretend like it's not there. No, the, the antidote to that is to hold fast to the doctrine that you have been taught in verse 17. And so, yes, Christians, there will be a lot of noise around us. Uh, our, our culture preaches a different gospel. And yet, what do we, what do, we do? We, we don't just try to tune it out. We cancel it out with right doctrine, with good doctrine, with reading Scripture, with sitting under godly teaching and holding fast to the truth. Oaks Church, I think this is a good warning for us, too, as, as we see the Lord doing so much. May we not take it for granted. May we not grow slack, but may we commit, double down to the doctrine as it has been taught. Paul rejoices over the church in Rome, saying in verse 19, to be wise to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And then in verse 20, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Um, it's, it's interesting as we read in Romans 5, Paul speaks of the, the peace that we have with God through Christ. Now he's speaking of the peace of God that we have because the God of peace is supplying it and he lacks nothing. He says, hold fast to this promise that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now I believe here that Paul is making a subtle reference to Genesis 3.15 where sin enters into the world and the curse of sin corrupts all humanity, all of creation, and God speaks to the serpent and he makes the serpent a promise in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, many scholars believe that this is the first subtle mention of the gospel, that the offspring here, in Hebrew, it's interestingly enough, singular. Now, why would God be referring to the offspring of the woman? We know that Eve would have three sons at least, and that he uses singular. Well, he's talking about the one who would eventually be born of woman, the son of God taking on flesh, entering into the creation that he made to take on the judgment for humanity. And that by doing so, he would bruise the heel of the serpent. He would crush the heel of the serpent. And although his heel would be bruised, there would be a nail driven through the feet of Christ. Although his heel would be bruised, he would ultimately be victorious over this cunning serpent. And now Paul is saying, hold fast to this truth. This promise is already and not yet. That, that Satan has been defanged and yet still goes around like a roaring lion. Hold fast to this hope that one day the God of peace will ultimately and finally crush this serpent under your feet on the day that Christ returns and his reign is fully realized. We hold fast to the fact that Christ has won that he has triumph, and one day this triumph will be fully realized in the fact that sin, Satan, and death will have no impact upon us anymore. Then Paul mentions some of the people that are with him in Corinth. Timothy, a dear brother, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. We don't know much about Lucius, but Jason uh, was with Paul in Thessalonica. Sosipater is Sopater that was with Paul in Berea. Tertius wrote this letter, so Paul had an amanuensis. This was very common in this day that uh, you would speak something and it would be written um, by someone as you were speaking it. And so Tertius was kind of the secretary of Paul who's writing this as he spoke this letter. Um, Gaius, who was Paul's host and hosted the church, was one of the two people that Paul baptized in Corinth. And so he's still here with Gaius. Um, and Erastus is the city treasurer. Uh, we don't know anything about Cordus, but the cool thing is, archaeologically, if you look at uh, the, 
the things that have been discovered in Corinth, you will see that there is this large stone that says um, Erastus uh, paved this road from his own finances. Uh, which is neat because we read here that Erastus was the city treasurer, which is like the city steward. It's like the guy in the government that was in charge of public works. And so it was very common in that time period that someone, in order to ingratiate themselves, to have favor with uh, the people that lived in a province, they would pay for some structure to be built. And so here it's neat that we read that Paul is sending greetings from Erastus, the city treasurer, and that we've found this, uh, this large stone that says Erastus, the city treasurer, paid for the paving of this road with his own money. It shows you that even in the early church, there were people um, from all different parts of uh, the socioeconomic spectrum that were a part of God's work in the world. And it's neat to see how that is confirmed. Um, you know, parts of scripture are confirmed just through archeological evidence. Third and final conclusion, we will glorify God forever for what was once concealed and has now been revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will glorify God forever for what was once concealed and has now been revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll end with these verses. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul ends this letter very similar to the way that he wrote it. We don't have time right now, but if you look at the, the very beginning of this letter, verses one through three, and then this final doxology, you will see that there are so many similarities in that Paul is trying to bookend this masterful letter with all for God's glory because of the revelation throughout the ages, all for God's glory forevermore through eternity. It's all about God's glory. Every single word written in Romans is so that you would know how to glorify God all the more. Paul says that this mystery has been revealed. It's been kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed in verse 26 through the prophetic writings made known to all nations. Here he's saying that God has progressively revealed who he is through the prophetic writings, and he has made himself known now to all the nations. As Paul said in Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that God's plan was always that the nations would come to know him. That's why, that's why God made the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12.3 that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed not just the Israelites, not just the Hebrews, but through the promise that God would ultimately fulfill through the coming of Christ, the people of every nation, tribe, and tongue would confess Jesus as Lord and acknowledge him as Savior of all sinners who call upon his name. Well, we see this, it, it wells up glory in our hearts to sing a similar to doxology to what Paul has written here. He says, this is all according to the command of the eternal God. God in eternity past has planned this to draw people to himself, to give them eternal life. It brings about the obedience of faith. Whenever you recognize that you are a sinner in need of saving and God the Father sent his only son to save you, to die in your place on the cross, to take upon the penalty of your sin, to then give the righteousness that you need to you, completely free of your religious effort, Whenever you believe that, when you trust in him, you gain life, eternal life that comes through faith in Christ. And how is that faith evidenced? Through obedience. Sometimes whenever we think about placing our faith in Christ, we think about that as just a one-time decision that we made at a camp or in a worship service 10 years ago. But what Paul is saying here is that it takes daily faith to obey the Lord. It takes faith to trust God with your finances with your sexuality, with your purity, with your parenting, with your time management, with your priorities. It takes daily faith. But why do we do it? Because from this time forth and forevermore, God is worthy of the glory of every single person that he has created and put breath in their lungs and caused their heart to beat. Verse 27, he says, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, why does he say that? Why does he lift our eyes to the glory of God in this doxology? he knows we're weak. 
He knows that we need strength. He knows that our only hope for perseverance in this life is to fix our eyes firmly on Christ and the glory of God made known to him. How does this doxology, how does it begin? Verse 25, now to him who is able to strengthen you. Do you need strength? Are you weary from fighting against sin and trying to withstand temptation? Are you weary from forgetting who you are in Christ as sometimes the lies of Satan seem louder in your ears? Are you weary? Do you sometimes wonder, is there any hope that I can actually finish this race and fight the good fight? Remember that what God has begun in you, he will see through to the day of its completion. It doesn't say be strong. It says, no, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the preaching of this gospel of Jesus Christ. So Christian, be strengthened as you fix your eyes on the glory of God. Paul here says that this is all for the glory of the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Why do we live for the glory of God here and now? First, it's because it's what we were created for. But second, it's because it is what we will spend our effort and energy on throughout all eternity. Glorify God now because you will glorify God forever. You will find satisfaction in nothing else because you were made for nothing else. I'll close with this. Uh, it's, it's been a joy to read some of the prayers and uh, passages of Scripture that were written on the stage of the Oaks Church building. I know many of you have done that. Um, some of you, maybe if you've yet to do that, there's still opportunity to do that. Uh, but, but I've loved just kind of reading some of those prayers for our church. And there was one prayer in particular that uh, Sarah Lyon wrote that was encouragement to me and reminded me of this last verse of Romans 16. She wrote, God, we will praise you for longer than this building will be standing. One day, that building will be no more. One day, the foundation will crack, crumble, the bricks will fall. All of the, the money that we've spent on renovation will, will not matter. And I'm okay with that. Why? Because I know that we will worship God in his presence for longer than that building will be standing. That what we do in this room each and every week, what we will do in that room or any room that comes after it is just a foretaste of what we will do forevermore. And so as Paul lifts our eyes to focus on the glory of God, may we be a church that exists for nothing else. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by bringing restoration through the gospel to Cincinnati and the world. Let's pray.